Lord, this morning we need your counsel and your guidance to walk us through the events of this text. As much, Lord, as we love the character David because he foreshadows you, we are also shocked by David. And yet, Lord, that shocking reality should cause us to look at ourselves and to see the sinfulness that is in our hearts and come running again to the throne of grace to lean on your steadfast love and to cry out for mercy. Allow me as your messenger today to simply be faithful to your text, that you would be glorified, that your people would be strengthened, and Lord, that we would be conformed to the image of your Son. Allow us, Lord, to not be distracted, to give you our all, and to be humble before you. We ask this now in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I want to begin with a question this morning. Have you ever tried to stand up in a canoe? And have you tried to stand up in a canoe and fallen face first in the water? I think most of us who have tried, or the first time we try, we experience that. Now, just remember, canoes are not made for us to stand up in. The point is that you sit and you spread out the weight, and they're kind of wobbly if you're not careful. In fact, if you're going to be in rougher waters, if you're going to be in a boat that you want to stand up in, one of the things that you need to do is you need to make sure that that boat has a ballast. And that ballast basically is, is weights in the bottom strategically placed of that boat so that it can hold itself in the water and it won't wobble properly. In fact, if you think of a sailboat, you think of all the sails on the top, you think of a sailboat in the bottom, all that is in the bottom, even the, that, that large, I guess you call it, it's not a rudder, but it's part of that ballast goes deep into the water. It's there to provide stability. Now, friends, usually when we think about um, a boat, maybe we're in a marina and we're looking around and we say, oh, that boat looks really, really cool. Look at that boat. Look how big it is. Look how shiny it is. Look at those sails. That's all good. It's all nice, but the strength of a boat is not just in the sails. The strength of the boat is in the soundness of its ballast. In other words, what's under the surface is critically important for that boat to function in the way that it was designed to function. What you see isn't always the reality. And friends, this morning as we move into this text, we have been on a journey through 1st and 2nd Samuel looking at God raising up the man after his own heart, David in particular, and he has set him up as king. And we have seen the beauty of that story, the wonder of that reality. But today begins a journey in a new direction. Listen to how John Woodhouse describes it. 
2 Samuel 11 is the turning point of the story of David and his kingdom, just as Genesis 3 was the turning point for the human race. Things will never be the same again. While the story told in this chapter is rightly famous, its massive significance is rarely appreciated. What we have today is the exposing of Davis' ballasts and how they are beginning to erode. And what is on the surface is going to come crashing down. So God had sought a man after his own heart, and that man was David. God had chosen him to be king. He had raised him up. He had defeated enemies and armies, and he gathered the people together, and he gained the city of Jerusalem. He brought back the Ark of the Covenant to that place. It was a glorious story. And it began in the book of Judges in 29-25. I just want to remind you of that. In those days, there was no what in Israel? No king in Israel. And everyone or every man did what was right in his own eyes. But God, in his own providence, in his own way, raised up a man after his own heart to be that king. And it reaches its zenith as David sits on the throne in that captured, fortified city of Jerusalem. God's people, Israel and Judah, are gathered together in one place, in Jerusalem and the extended borders of the nation at that point in time, under God's rule, where worship had been reestablished. These certainly were the golden days, but it's in the middle of these golden days that we find chapter 11. Chapters 10 through 12 tell the story of that end, all in the context, and this is important, all in the context of God's kindness. If you remember in chapter 9, God extends kindness to Mephibosheth. It's received. Chapter 10, God extends kindness to Hanan, and it is rejected. And that begins these Ammonite wars. And then as we get into chapter 11, what we find is that David, rather than going out to battle, stays home. And we see there his adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah, his confrontation by the prophet Nathan, which of course was an act of kindness on God's part that ultimately leads David to repentance. But it was also an act that leads to lasting consequence. Then at the end of chapter 12, this Ammonite battle at Rabbah is completed by Joab and ultimately David. Now friends, this is a famous story, isn't it? You walk in society, if you stop someone, you might say, hey, tell me a story from the Bible. You'll probably get David and Goliath. You might get the flood. One of the ones that will come up is David and Bathsheba. People, people have heard about this one. People know about this one. And, and, and one of the things we always struggle with with a familiar story is what? Things are familiar to us, and we may not look at the text, or we might think uh, something's about the text that maybe the text isn't clearly staying. So there's some literary features I want us to consider before we actually move into this longer story. Some literary features that I think are going to help us approach this 
um, in, a, in a right way, in a helpful way. Number one, the honesty of the Word of God. One of the things I love about God's Word, is it is brutally honest. It's honest in particular about the flaws of its heroes. David is the great hero of Israel, but he is put on display in this passage, warts and all. There's no photoshopping going on here. There's no edits trying to make him out to be something other than what he is. Friends, that is also one of the evidences that this is a, a divinely inspired book. Because if man were putting a book together, he would put a book together that describes the hero in glorious terms, leaving out the bad bits. But here is God's chosen servant, and we're seeing the rawness of his heart, the sinfulness of his behavior. But God allows us then not only to see it in David, but just think with me. Um, Noah, greatly used by God. After the flood, we find him, what? Naked and drunk. How about Abraham, the patriarch of Israel, the one that God said, I'm going to bless you. As many as the stars in the sky. In a moment of his panicked weakness, what does he do? He lies through his teeth. Moses, God's chosen deliverer of Israel from Egypt, is also a murderer. Peter, the great outspoken disciple of Christ, denies him three times before the cock crows. So the word of God is honest. And be thankful that the word of God is honest. But aware, be aware that it, it is honest. So just, friends, hear this. There are no celebrities among God's servants. There certainly are going to be pastors and teachers that you may appreciate. You might listen to their podcasts. You might read some of the books that are helpful. But there are no Christian celebrities. Every one of those people you're reading, every podcast that you're listening to is a story or it's a book or it's a message from a man who has sinful tendencies. So we must be careful not to be caught up in the idolatry of man, which is so prevalent in Christian culture today. Secondly, notice the restraint of the word of God. The word of God is rightly restrained. It is restrained in its description of events, in particular in this passage. In this passage, it talks about the sin of adultery, deception, and lying, but not like it would be on display in a Hollywood movie. Oh, Hollywood, they would, want to, they would want to get into what Bathsheba's doing as she's, as she's there going through the ceremonial cleansing. And they would turn it into something that God never intended it to be, but the Word of God is restrained, purposely so. We're given enough information to understand the extent of the sin and the depravity of the human heart, but not to linger in the sin. So it's restrained in its description, but it's also restrained in its emotion, in its feeling. One of the striking things about this particular story is this. You do not have any information about how Bathsheba feels in this whole interaction with David. In fact, you don't have any inkling as to how Uriah 
thinks or feels about what David is asking him to do, except for that one loyalty statement to say, how in the world can I go back to my wife when my brothers are out there in the battle? Even when Joab gets instructions from David, we're not told how he feels. He just does what he's told. So it's, it's, it, there's a restraint here in, in giving us all of the details or to explain all of those details or bring us into that world. And as a writer, you're writing a record with a purpose. And this is a, a divinely inspired record. And so what the writer here is doing is he's deliberately saying what he's saying for a reason. So you might put it this way. The word of God seems to silence all the feelings of these other characters in order to isolate David's lustful actions. In other words, he is the point. He is the focus. And that would bring us to the third literary feature, the focus of the word of God. David is the focus of this text. Now certainly Bathsheba, Uriah, and Nathan are significant players, but the whole of the narrative is driving us to see that it is David that has sinned. Now some might be tempted to put blame in the heart of Bathsheba, but hear this, the text does not. She is seen as an innocent victim, and David, the rich oppressor who steals the poor man's lamb and prepares it for the traveler. So these are some things that just will help us to, to navigate through the waters of the story. We're not going to go through all of what we read this morning. This morning we're going to focus on verses 1 through 5 because there's plenty there for us to mine and to consider about our own souls, about our own heart. So we're going to focus on David and Bathsheba. And here we want to see the devastating power of sin in the heart of the servant of God. The devastating power of sin in the heart of the servant of God. Forty years ago, a 350-foot-high Teton Dam in Madison County, Idaho, failed completely. And it released its contents to bring destruction to two towns in particular. One was called Rexburg, the other one was Sugar City. Eyewitnesses say that there was a 15-foot wall of water that came down and it came into a lumber yard and picked up all of the lumber, just like they were matchsticks, and drove them like, like these torpedoes into these gas storage containers. And they exploded, which resulted in, in, in the towns catching fire. And there was just massive devastation that took place as a result of this dam um, really losing um, its, its integrity. In the end, 11 people died along with 13,000 head of livestock. 100,000 people were displaced and homes, crops, and wooded groves and so on were destroyed all along the flood's path. Teton Dam was supposed to be an engineering marvel, something to model, something to celebrate. But on June 5th, 1976, at 11.57 a.m., the dam gave way to carve its own path of destruction. Sadly, warning signs were present, but the people observing the signs did not comprehend the enormity 
of the implications of what they saw. Springs were showing up downstream, which should have alerted them to, to some, some lack of integrity in the, I'm going to say, subterranean uh, um, areas. There was also a question of the, 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 the initial building of the dam. They shouldn't even have done it because it was a, a place in an area that was prone to earthquakes. I mean, I know, looking back, hindsight, you know, you just ask yourself whether this is wise or not. But also they underestimated the pressure of the water on the structure that they built. And even when they filled in cracks with mortar, it was insufficient. So there was this unseen cracks beneath the surface, but the warning signs were not addressed, and a devastating flood was the result. The collapse of Tatan Dam didn't happen suddenly. It happened a little bit by a little bit by a little bit under the surface. Warning signs were there. They weren't understood. They weren't heeded. No one saw the little flaw, and no one got hurt by it, but everyone saw the big collapse, and many were hurt by that. So to summarize, it started with cracks and faults under the surface, and when those cracks broke, the floods poured forth, and as a result, there were great and devastating consequences. Unchecked cracks led to unhindered floods, which led to unwelcome devastation. And friends, there's, there's a sense in which the story that we're looking at here mirrors that example. Here's David. His ballasts don't have the integrity they should have. As a, as a dam, there are cracks under the surface. And they're ready to lose their integrity with the kind of sinful pressure that comes his way. And so this morning, we want to consider this topic, the devastating power of sin in the heart of the servant of God. And the reality is, friends, if you are a follower of Christ, you fit in there. Sin is still present with us. Sin can still have destructive power in your life. It's paid for, but its presence is still real and it can bring horrific damage to you as an individual, to those you love, and to the people you rub shoulders with. So this morning, let's begin by looking at the context, the context of David's sin. What happened at Tatum Dam is what happens with moral failure in the life of one of God's servants. And that's what we see happening now in the life of the man after God's own heart. David's big moral failure didn't just happen. It never does. There's always a context. No sin is ever committed without a context. You've heard me say many times, don't wait until you're going through suffering to develop a theology of suffering. Learn it now while you're not going through suffering so that when suffering comes, you're able to think clearly and not based on all the things that you're experiencing because of the suffering. And that same truth would be here also as we face temptation. Don't 
wait until you face temptation to try and figure out what you're supposed to do when you are being tempted. Figure it out now so that when temptation comes, you know what to do. You know how to think. You know how to behave. And you'll be in the right frame of mind. You'll be less likely to create a mess in your life. So what was David's frame of mind? What clues from our text can help us understand the context of David's temptation that led to his sin with Bathsheba in particular? In other words, what were the cracks beneath the surface in the dam of David's life and character that were present that eventually allowed the full-blown break of the dam to take place? Let's read verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. There's four things I want us to see, I think, either flow directly from this passage or are implied in the greater context of David's life coming into this passage. First of all, um, he was a man of great success. Experienced great success. Up to this point, when, when David has gone out to battle, he's been successful. And chapter 3 and verse 1 reminds us the house of David had truly grown stronger and stronger. And that was back before the resolve of uniting the nation and setting up his throne in Jerusalem and restoring the ark. He had been successful or he had been victorious against his enemies. He had brought back the ark, and he had been the recipient of this covenant with God, where God says, I will make for you a name. I will appoint a place. I will make you a house. I will establish your kingdom forever. I mean, David had been successful. Truly, God had been with David. He had defeated the Philistines and the Moabites and the Edomites and the Amalekites. He was at the zenith of his success. And friends, sometimes success is a very dangerous place to be. But not only was there success, but what came with that success was the fact that he was sovereign. He was the king. Under God, he was the supreme ruler of the kingdom. But if David isn't going to listen to God... Who is he going to listen to? He doesn't have a spiritual authority like Samuel around anymore to say, hey, David, don't stay at home. Go out with your army. He doesn't have a friend like Jonathan that's going to speak heart to heart with him and say, hey, listen, you've got some sinful tendencies you need to shore up, you need to deal with. It doesn't seem here that he has that kind of influence in his life. What David desperately needed in his life was someone who would lovingly speak to him about his sinful tendencies and encourage him and plead with him and even pray with him to deal with them. So in one sense, he was sovereign, but in another sense, he was flying solo. And friends, that is a dangerous place to be, to be successful and to be solo But not only that, we see some progression here. He's self-indulgent. 
success led to the self-indulgence. He's thinking, I can stay at home while I send Joab out with the rest of my army and the mighty men and all the men of Israel to, to go out there to besiege Rabbah. Hey, I did it the prior year, and they were successful. You look back in the story, that's what happened. David sent out his emissaries with this offer of hesed love, kindness to the king. It was rejected. David sent out Joab to deal with them. It's only in the end that David's brought it into the picture. So as a king, he has the right to, to say, you know what, you go out and deal with that. But it comes with implications. So the text appears to be saying to the reader that David's inward thoughts are something like this. It may be the time when kings typically go off to battle, but I'm going to take a break this time. Yeah, I've been fighting for a long time. I deserve a little break, don't I? Now, let's just think through this. David had a life. That was full of a lot of fighting, right? He's probably somewhere between 47 and 56, somewhere in that neighborhood at this point in time. I mean, he had been in battle after battle after battle. I think if you were in his position, you might rightly say to yourself, you know what? Let the young guns take care of this. But there's a sense in which we rationalize and we justify so that we can actually relax and be self-indulgent. And that opens the door to things. Now the text isn't screaming this at us, but it is suggesting to us that there was a change in David's attitude. In particular when it says, but David remained in Jerusalem. The narrator is kind of slipping that in there to say, hey, listen, this is the time when the kings typically go out to battle. They went on to battle, blah, blah, blah. But David stayed at home. He stayed in Jerusalem. Why isn't David going out with his mighty men? Why isn't he leading the armies to finish off the Ammonites in Rabbah? Remember how the, the people used to sing about David? Saul has killed his thousands, but David is what? Killed his tens of thousands. I mean, he was a mighty warrior in battle. You say that's probably where he was most comfortable as a warrior, as a fighter. Now the warrior of Israel would rather stay in the comfort of the palace than be with his men in battle. So this is self-indulgence. And I think it leads to this fourth one. And it's sad to say, but I think it's true. Um, he had become soft. And there's things in this, in this text that just kind of leads you to wonder. Have you noticed, if you read through this text, how, how the, the, the word couch is used? It's just kind of like, you know, and he gets up in the middle of the day, and he's getting off his couch. And you've got to get this picture. Here's David on the couch taking a siesta, and his men are over besieging Rabbah. Now, let's just paint the picture here. What does it mean to besiege a city? It means you go and you park your armies outside the city and you wait for them to die of disease. And then to finally come out and say, we surrender, then you kill them and it's over. As far as a military strategy is concerned, it's pretty dull. It's pretty boring. You go, 
you set up tents, you live in mud on the fields, you endure the elements. Nah, I don't think I want to do that. I'm going to stay in Jerusalem, and I'm going to enjoy my couch. I'm going to take walks on the roof, enjoy the breeze. Don't tell me you wouldn't think of that. Would you rather be in a tent? Would you rather eat military food? I see there's, there's a softness that creeps in here. But then you have to remember, David is used to living in tents. Well, not even tents. He's just used to living out in the wilderness. He's used to living off the land. So he's, he's moved in his behavior. He's moved in his thinking. He is, in a sense, in a new realm. Where was the David that endured such hardship of hiding in the rocks and the crevices while Saul sought him out to kill him? And where is David that chased down the enemies deep into the wilderness to do his duty before the Lord? Well, he's not present in this story because he stayed in Jerusalem. Now, those are some, some contexts I think help us understand how things unfold in this passage. But there's some lessons that we need to learn here that I think helpful just to draw things together. First of all, the absence of trial. You see, what we have here is a formula for trouble. The presence of success and the absence of trial. We all live to be successful, don't we? I mean, think about it. You want to do a good job. You want to be successful in what you do. But success comes with its pitfalls. Something about trials that keeps us focused, keeps us disciplined, and in a better mind before God. It's really difficult to be successful and to be consistent in your walk with God. Trials have a way of keeping us moored to where we need to be. I think that's what James is getting at. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Here's what he says. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith, what? Produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. In other words, the trial is the means by which you are being perfected. James is not saying, hey, focus on success, because through success, you're going to be perfected. No, it's trials that do that. And here's, here's the point, right? The point is this. When there is no trial and we are successful, we are in dangerous territory. So don't be angry when trials come. James says what? Count it all joy. Count it all joy that God is working on you through that trial, through that difficulty. So in light of our present story, we should be thankful for the trials that God brings our way. They are designed to test us and to retest us to keep us strong and alert rather than soft and self-absorbed. 
Secondly, the importance of duty. Now, duty is not a popular word these days. And by duty, I don't mean legalism, but there's a reason why God puts into our context the habits of a Christian walk, a habits of being part of the family of God. It's important to note here that being where God wants us to be is a means by which we are hindered from allowing the cracks in our sinful character to be challenged. David wasn't where he should be. And it opened the door for sin to come and to affect him. So when you stay away from Sunday service, obviously you're here, so this is not applying to you, but it could apply to you on another weekend. If you stay away from your local church family and you're running the risk when you do that of getting soft and drifting into self-indulgence. That's what the book of Hebrews tells us. This is Hebrews 10 and verse 25. Tells us they're not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. There's a need for us to gather together. That's why in chapter 3 of that same book, this is what it says. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. There's a need for the body there's a need for Christian friends to spend time together. So when you're, you're feeling vulnerable in your sinfulness, it's not a time to go hide away from your Christian friends or your Christian family or the gathering of God's people on Sunday morning. You should be running to those people. You need them. The absence of trial. The importance of duty. Third, the reality of our own sinfulness. Friends, the big lesson for us all is this. If the man after God's own heart, at the zenith of his success, can fall into such a devastating moral sin, so can I. So can you. None of us is immune. There's a context. And look at your own life and look at your own context and consider the cracks, the sinful cracks that you have that maybe other people can't see because they're under the surface. There's a context that's ready for sin to come and to put pressure on you. God would have us be alert to that and to be honest about our context that can give way to sin. Secondly, notice the course of David's sin. Just like that that, that flood, when the waters broke, the, the course that that water took still remains today in Idaho. And the cracks hidden under the surface, we are now drawn into the story in particular, and we'll see how the dam starts to break apart and why, and we'll see the progression of David's sin run its course in this destruction. Let's read verses 2 through verse 4. It happened. It happened. In other words, this wasn't planned. 
This wasn't some kind of deliberate thing that, that took place. David wasn't looking for it. Late one afternoon, when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And friends, just at this point in time, still everything's okay. Life happens. Sometimes you see things you don't want to see. The fact that she was beautiful... She can't help. But we read on. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Parentheses. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house. There it is. In the earlier chapters of 2 Samuel, David is driven by agape love toward people. said love. It's that loving kindness. We saw that over and over and over again. Now we find David driven by eros love, sensual, sexual lust. Here it is in short. He saw, he sent, he took, he lay. Boom, 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 boom. Here is the story. Here are the events. How quickly they happen. James 1, 14 through 15 states this. But everyone is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And this is exactly what we have taking place in the progression of David's fall into sin. Lured and enticed by his own desire, a desire conceived, the birth of sin, the consequences of death and destruction, truly the cracks in the dam were ready to break. Let's parse this out now. First of all, he saw. He saw. The homes in Jerusalem, you may have been there and seen, but they're typically flat. In fact, one of my friends who um, used to live in, in, in Bethlehem, he told me that when he and his wife moved back to Bethlehem, I was in college with him in South Carolina and when he moved back, um, his parents built a new layer on the house, still a flat house, and they got the bottom, the parents got the top. Parents get the new stuff, right? Um, the kids get the old stuff. But there was this, and, and then what happened, because there's, there's a little kind of a, a yard, but even on top of the house, it was, it was the place where people would gather to experience the, the cool breezes, or at least the breezes that would cool you down on a hot day. So it was a social place. It wasn't unusual for anyone to be up there. It was understandable that someone would be up there. So here is David, and he is, he is in the palace, but he's on the roof of that palace, and he is simply getting up from his afternoon siesta, you know, getting the silk, kind of, you know, rubbing that on the, on the couch and getting up and, and just enjoying that afternoon. He's looking around, which is understandable. You look around, you see, and of course, you know, Jerusalem is, is on mountains and stuff like that. By the way, Matthias, 
Jr. called me when he got to, um, to Michigan, and he said, Pastor Rod, it's so flat here. <laughs> you guys just don't know how good you have it here. But here he is in Jerusalem, and he's in the palace, and he's able to see all these different places. And because his home was the palace and sat high above the other homes, he looked down on a nearby house where a woman was bathing herself, right? And she was very beautiful, and David is aroused. It would appear that his seeing was not a glance, but a lingering and lustful look. He saw and didn't look away. And that is what he had prepared in his heart to do. These are the cracks now that are being tested by this encounter, by this visual encounter with someone completely outside of his world, except for the fact that she was going through her ceremonial cleansing. Now, friends, I want to particularly talk to the men first. There's some things here that we need to just simply address. We, as men, are challenged every day because we're living in a society that has been desensitized to immorality and scoffs at modesty. So we're called to face times of sensual temptation in a way that both honors God and respects the opposite sex. We're living in a world where it's present, but we're called to respond in a way that honors God and shows respect for the opposite sex. We can't always help seeing things that can stir up our lustful hearts. But I want to say two things, and they seem similar, but they're not. First thing is this, but we can look away. We can look away. It isn't the first look that we're concerned about. Life happens, but it's the second look and the third look and the fourth look. We can look away, but that takes a determination ahead of time. Not in the moment, but ahead of time. Saying, this is how I'm going to behave. When I see something that is sensual, is sexual nature that I know is going to stir me up, I'm just, I'm just going to look away. I'm not going to go back there. It takes discipline. Secondly, and this is where it's, it's very similar, but it's a little different. Not only can we look away, but we can also avert our eyes. Be ready to look somewhere else. Be, have a habit of, of knowing where you're going to put your eyes if you see something that maybe you know is stirring you up. Now, in particular, I'm going to be very, very frank here. In particular, when you talk to another lady, especially when she is dressed provocative or immodestly, do your best to look her in the eye. It's so easy as men to drop your eyes and to look and to seek, have the discipline to look your counterpart in the eye. That's a matter of respect. That's a matter of honoring the opposite sex, and it's also protection for you. If you're watching TV or you're, you're watching a movie, have a plan of action that you'll look away. Number one, first of all, what are you watching? Secondly, have a plan if something comes up to say, I'm going to look away, and you're not 
taking in any more than you absolutely have to. Okay, this looking away, averting our eyes. David saw and he didn't avert his eyes to guard his heart from the lustful thoughts. No, hear this. The implication is that he looked, he lingered, then stored up those thoughts and images in his heart. That's why he says, who is that woman? Because he's been thinking about it. He's been pondering on what he thought and what he saw. As men, we would do well to heed the counsel of Job who says, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? Ladies, you're not off the hook. Much has been written about Bathsheba's culpability, suggesting that she was also out. It was also her fault because she was bathing in plain sight. But we must be careful here just to stay on the line of the text and not say more or less than the text is saying. The text doesn't say anything negative about her bathing. He, through line of sight, was for some reason able to see her. You will not find evidence against Bathsheba in the text, so we must not either. Now, yes, it is possible that she was bathing, hoping to be seen, but the text is silent on that. It is true that she commits adultery with David, but the text holds him responsible, not her. Yes, maybe she should have said something, but that is us looking into the Hebrew context with 21st century eyes. Ours is a society where women are supposed to be treated as equals and are encouraged to stand up when men are harassing them sexually. But in the ancient world, women were not treated in the same manner. And not only that, the mighty men, the men of Israel, were where? The heroes to come to someone's aid are where? They're they're in Rabbah. And it's the king. And the king says, come, what do you do? You come. Now still some more lessons to be learned. There's three that I want to put up here, and this is for both the men and for the women. Number one, modesty is a beautiful gift. So please don't despise it. Ladies, it is a gift to the men around you that you love and appreciate. Your modesty is a wonderful gift. A gift that means that you care about their hearts, that you care about their struggles. Don't despise it. Even if the world despises it, you don't despise it. Secondly, immodesty is a powerful poison that challenges every man's heart. So work hard to avoid it. Just because it's fashionable doesn't mean it's helpful. Just because one of your friends has an outfit like that or behaves that way doesn't necessarily mean that's what God wants you to do. Be careful you don't get caught up rationalizing things away. Just because our world makes light of it, 
and encourage you to show a little bit more skin doesn't mean that you should. Here's the third thing. It is one thing for a girl to make herself attractive. It's another thing for a girl to make herself seductive. Girls probably know the difference. Hear this. Guys certainly do. Now, having said all that, David saw, but it didn't end there, did it? David also sought. Notice how the sin is progressing. He saw, but he's been thinking, and a plan is beginning to formulate in his head. He's teasing out his sinful thoughts, not exactly sure where they're going to go, how this is going to take shape, but he's going to at least begin. He's going he's to probe. He's going to see if there's, there's anything happening here, and so he sent and inquired about the woman. Now notice how David is now involving other people in his own sinful pursuits. And here comes the answer. It's twofold. This is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam. In other words, this is someone's daughter. Guys, when you're on the computer and you're clicking away and you see that picture, remember, that's someone's daughter. Then it goes on and says, this is the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. Oh, this is not someone's daughter. This is someone's wife. And the significant thing that we need to catch here is this. That both of these men were part of his mighty men. These were guys who were loyal to David. And he is pondering at this moment, hearing this news, what he's going to do next? Am I loyal to my God? And I suppress what I'm feeling, what I'm thinking in a way that would honor him? Am I disloyal to those mighty men who have come around me and supported me? Or do I just pursue the sin that my body and my heart desires? The news that informs David about this woman comes, but it's news that should have woken David out of his lustful thinking. He might even say this, this news was God's kindness toward David, a kindness that was still at work. Hey, David, this is someone's daughter. Hello? This is someone's wife. What are you thinking? God is saying to David, David, here are two reasons why you should stop your pursuit of this woman now. Yes, she's beautiful, but she's someone's daughter, she's someone's wife, and both of these someones are men who are so loyal to you that they are fighting for you right now in Rabbah. And we want to say to David, again, this is one of those situations in the Bible I wish it was more interactive and we could jump in and we could slap the person silly, Right? We would say to David, listen, there's still time to put the brakes on. There's still an opportunity to guard your heart by turning away from these 
thoughts, the warning signs, David, are screaming at you, saying, pay attention, look out, beware. But the cracks are beginning to get bigger. The ballast of the, of the boat is continuing to lose its integrity. He saw, he sought, and I put these together, he took and he lay. He saw, he sought, now he takes her and commits adultery with her. Verse 4, now David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him and lay, he lay with her. And again, notice how in his sinning, David is ordering people to go back and forth to do his bidding as king. This is a brazen move by David. But lust has taken over his thinking. This is what's called the noetic effect of sin. When we allow ourselves to give into sin, sin affects how we think. And we begin to rationalize things away. We begin to justify our actions. We begin to justify our behavior. We, we think we can handle it, or it's not that big of a deal. We ignore God's word. We push God aside, and all the while, it's sin that is affecting our thinking. And so David just presses on to take what doesn't belong to him. What began as a sinful thought on the roof of the palace that was in his heart, though, the thought in his heart has now turned into a vile act before God with Bathsheba to all those people involved. Now, if we're going to be honest about this particular part of the text, there's really four sinful acts that are taking place. I'll be brief here, but I just want you to think about this and ponder this. Because this is not just David committed adultery with Bathsheba. That's it. There's lots of stuff going on here. The involvement of others in his sin. Secondly, the abuse of his kingly authority and power. There's more we could say about that. And that is a problem, friends. It hasn't been a problem in history. It's a problem today also. Just because you're in a position of authority does not give you the freedom to exercise that authority and power in a way that would mean that you feel like you can sexually harass a person of the opposite sex. David uses his authority. He uses the channels that he has and the people that he has to pursue what he wants. Then, of course, there's the act of adultery itself. He, he lay with her. Richard Phillips says it well, driven by his lust and enabled by his power, David tramples on God's law and casts aside every bond of loyalty, all so that he can indulge the sensual passions that he permitted himself to indulge in his sinful heart. What was in the heart came out in action. He heedlessly crosses a holy line, hear this, that cannot be uncrossed. Just like when Eve took the apple or the fruit and bit into it. She crossed a line that could not be uncrossed. And the fourth thing, the fourth sin, is this fleeting belief that it was all going to be okay. You could just pick that up from the last part of that verse. 
she returned to her house. <laughs> now notice what's in parentheses there. It's just something put there to help us understand that there's no question that this baby that's going to be born is David's baby. Okay? She had been purifying herself from her uncleanness, which means that her period was over and now she was viable and it wasn't Uriah, it was David. Remember James 1, 14 through 15, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. His own desire. It wasn't Bathsheba that made David sin. It was the sinful desire in David's heart, uncontrolled, undealt with, left to itself, that bore fruit in the sinful behavior. He is responsible for his actions. That's why in Psalm 51, David says, against you, you only have I sinned. Psalm 51, of course, is his reflection, his repentance over the sins that he committed as it relates to his sin with Bathsheba. Now let's notice the consequences of David's sin. We're not going to spend a lot of time here. We'll touch on it a little bit more next week. But hear this. David was not looking for a wife. David was not even looking for an ongoing affair. In fact, David wasn't looking for anything, but he just ultimately, once he saw her, wanted a one-night stand. There wasn't anything ongoing here. It was a one-time sexual encounter. It was simply pure sexual Lust, and then go home. He saw, he took, or he saw, he saw it, he took, he lay, and then she returned to her house. But several weeks have passed now, and everything seems to be neat and tidy and under David's control. We hear nothing of shame, we hear nothing of guilt, we hear nothing of any kind of emotions that are going on. But what we do know is that his world is about to unravel because he comes uh, to a place where he receives this note from Bathsheba by a messenger. He opens it up and it says, I am pregnant. (sighs) David, you are no longer in control. You thought you could control it. You thought that with all the skills and all the ability you have and the authority and sovereignty that you could just kind of do what you want without any consequence. But I have something to tell you, David. You are not in control. And hear this. This note and this message from Bathsheba would shock him, but it is also a news that is part of God's kindness to David so that David, at the point of hearing that news, could turn to God and say, God, what have I done before you and before her and before these people? This is an opportunity for him to repent and to restore his life with God. David has the opportunity to see this new opportunity to stop his sinful behavior. And we'll find next week that he doesn't heed that. The damage is done. And verse 27 reminds us of what God thought about this. Ultimately, the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. It's kind of a soft translation, in my opinion. 
that was evil in his sight. This was no small thing that David had done. Now hear this, friends. As God's children, when we are tempted and we encounter obstacles in the fulfilling of that temptation, we should see in that obstacle the gracious hand of God kindly calling us to repentance. You're on your computer You start to go looking for things that you shouldn't look for and somehow your browser locks as an obstacle to what I want to satisfy myself with. And God is screaming in that moment, stop where you are. That is his kindness to you. That is his loyalty to you. His providence is at work. Oh, you don't see God saying, hey, I gave you this information that she's pregnant so that you would repent. No, it's the providence of the events that are happening that as they're happening, God is saying, remember, I'm here and I'm drawing you in. Isn't it amazing how God's kindness is throughout this whole story? We'll see that a little bit more. God, in the midst of our sinfulness, pursues us to remind us because he is loyal to us. The question is, will we listen to his providence? What we need in the moment of of our sinfulness is to be reminded of the power of the gospel. What we need to preach to ourselves is that because of Christ and his work on the cross, because of what Jesus did in taking our place and paying for our sin, That we are no longer in bondage to sin, meaning that we we can't be freed from it. We don't have to be under sin's power. We can be free. We can be forgiven. We can be restored because of what Jesus has done. I love the words of the well-known song, Come Thou Fount. The psalm begins this way. Come thou fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy grace. Tune my heart. And friends, we we always need to be tuning our heart to be thinking about God's grace, to be thinking about his kindness. And and the, the, the song goes on, the third stanza says it this way. So, oh to grace, how great a debtor. Daily I'm constrained to be. And let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Friends, we cannot fight this lust in our heart on our own. We need the gospel. We need to preach the gospel to our own hearts. We need to be prepared with the the temptation that comes our way. We need to see the reality of the cracks that are there, but we need God's help to deal with it. Concluding thoughts, two of them. 
Number one, be fully aware of the power of sin. You've probably heard this before, said this way, sin will take you farther than you want to go. Sin will keep you longer than you want to stay. Sin will cost you far more than you want to pay. What you have up there on the screen is the old cathedral quartet version. It's a song, and I love what they put in there. Sin will take you farther than you want to go. Slowly, but wholly taking control. Sin will keep you longer than you want to stay. Sin will cost you far more than you want to pay. Friends, that's what happens when we give in to sin and we don't listen to God's kindness as we're in the midst of it. You might be looking at your life and and you see cracks. You've already experienced the, the floods flowing and there's destruction all around you. You understand the power of sin. You see it for what it is, but you also then not only need to be fully aware of the power of sin, but you also need to be fully aware of the kindness of God. Yes, our ongoing sin does not please God. It is evil in his eyes, but that is why he sent his son to be our savior. See, David was modeling kindness to Mephibosheth, to Hanan, but then he's confronted with sin. And now God is modeling kindness to David when he is being disloyal, when he is being Um, dismissive when he is pursuing devastation in his life, when he is in rebellion against God. God is still kind to his children. So even David, when he finally humbled himself before God and repented of This sin, he cries out for mercy. Turn your Bibles to Psalm 51. I want you to see it, and I want to encourage you to meditate on this psalm as we go through these, these, these few chapters here because it encompasses all that we're looking at. But the first two verses, I think, help us tie some things together. It's up there on the screen, but I want you to see it in your Bibles too. He cries out for mercy on the basis of God's kindness, his steadfast love. He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Let me ask you a question. Does God do that? Does he do that? Yes, he does. Now, in this room, all sorts of us, we've been through all sorts of experiences. We may be struggling right now in the midst of difficulty. Some of you might identify with David. Some of you might identify with Bathsheba. And I even want to say to you, God's kindness has not left you alone. If you are a person who has been preyed upon, you have been abused by others, you have been mistreated, 
my heart breaks for you, but I want to show you Christ. I want to show you the kindness of God. I want to show you his consistent, steadfast love. If you're David, your lust is just out of control. You're just fighting it. I want to give you Christ. I want to show you the steadfast love of God. He has not abandoned you. And he is there. But he wants you to run to him and to cry out to him and say, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Now hear this. God may blot them out, but you may not believe that he's blotted them out. And that's a matter of unbelief. If God says your sin is forgiven, if if your transgressions have been blotted out, that's what God says he will do. It's our responsibility then to believe it. And sometimes we struggle with that. Because our memories still tick, don't they? We still remember things that we're ashamed of, that that it happened to us or that we did to others, how can God forgive us? He does. He does. The Apostle Paul, I think, reminds us of some similar truths here. In Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 7, here's what he says. In him, talking about Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our uh, our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. Friends, we don't deserve that, but we are the recipients of it. Lord, would you take this time? It's a somber time, Lord. Because not only do we see David exposed But the difficulty, Lord, is when we see David exposed, we are reminded of our own sinfulness and our own bent towards satisfying our own desires and the battles that we have been a part of and the ways that we have failed you and the times that we have totally blown it when it hasn't remained in our heart and it's gone full-born into our lives. And, Lord, we are ashamed of that I pray, Lord, that today that even this message would be received on our hearts as an expression of your kindness toward us. Calling us to see you as our great God and Savior who wants to extend mercy, who wants to be the agent of restoration, who wants to pick up his children who have fallen out of the canoe, face first, dry them off and restore them back to where they need to be. Help us, Lord, to see you as that great God and Savior. Lord, we are sinful creatures who through repentance can be restored to you And that's all because of your loving kindness. Thank you, Lord, for your loyalty.
to us. We ask this now in your precious name. Amen.